Hi, I'm Kate Finlayson, and welcome to Market Matters. I'm Global Head of Thick Market Structure at JP Morgan, and in our team, we're focused on drivers impacting the provision of liquidity in the market and how one interacts with that liquidity. In today's episode, I'm joined by Emma Richardson, Global Head of Treasury, Business Risk, and Product Development for the Derivatives Clearing Business, as well as Paul Davidson, North America Head of Derivatives Clearing. Hi, Emma and Paul. Hi, Kate. Hello, Kate. Great to be here. As we um, head into the new year, phase six of the BCBS IOSCO's global uncleared margin requirements will apply from 1st September 2022. As this final phase in the rollout of the requirement approaches and the threshold lowered, a much larger number of market participants will be affected and are no doubt assessing what these requirements will mean for their portfolios in terms of the potential associated trading costs and how best to prepare Now, margin economics aside, it's not necessarily a clear-cut decision in terms of where liquidity may actually lie, where bilateral trading still remains the best or possibly the only source of liquidity or way of hedging certain asset classes and what derivatives clearing solutions are available. Paul and Emma, are we seeing clearing activity increasing as a result of the UMR phase-in? And what impact will this have in terms of the offerings put forward by clearinghouses? Perhaps, Paul, if I come to you first. Sure, Kate. Well, clients have been actively seeking opportunities to achieve both margin and capital efficiencies over the last couple of years. And we continue to see voluntary clearing being adopted in instances where the cleared model makes fiduciary sense. In terms of the recent phase of UMR, though, I would say that it is still too early to say how it could change behavior as it relates to clearing. It's hard to confirm the exact number of impacted parties in each phase, but ISDA estimates about 300 in phase five. And a lot of the impacted parties will still be managing below that $50 million IM threshold perspective activity, potentially under documentation forbearance. And therefore, they won't be required to set up a custodian account or post IM in line with the uncleared margin rules until they finally reach that threshold. Yep, I'd agree. I do think it's a little bit too early to say. So one of the things that we've noticed is that although the mandatory clearing obligation hasn't significantly changed over the last few years, clearinghouses have continued to evolve their product offering. So for example, products like inflation swaps or credit derivative options are now available for clearing. One of the other product developments we've seen is an advancement in cross-margin opportunities. And all of these things together mean that voluntary clearing is an attractive solution for clients, irrespective of the implementation of UMR. Um, We also hear a lot of interest for FX clearing, but the range of products eligible for clearing is much smaller, and therefore clients might end up bifurcating their portfolios, which would mean that they might lose both netting and margin efficiencies. The industry is working, though, on expanding that scope of products that are eligible for client clearing, um, and that could make that more attractive as an option for clients um, in the future. So it will be interesting to see how this evolves over the course of the next 12 to 24 months. Paul said for phase five, it was estimated around 300 counterparties. For phase six, it could be north of 700 additional parties that are going to be brought into scope for initial margin. So based on the track record, I do think it will be another few years until we really understand the impact of the initial margin rules. One element that we continue to keep our eye on are the liquidity dynamics post-Brexit. So in September 2020, the European Commission granted temporary equivalence to the three London-based CCPs, which expires at the end of June next year. 
This is, of course, particularly interesting in terms of how balances may shift over the longer term and how policymakers and regulators view things. While it has been announced by Commissioner McGuinness on the 10th of November that she plans to propose that the European Commission extends temporary equivalence for UK CCPs, the Commission has continued to express its desire to reduce EU market participants' over-reliance on UK CCPs and to increase clearing capacity in the EU. What are the factors that are driving the decisions made by market participants about where to clear? Look, I think that was a, a really welcome announcement that we just had, although it just still does remain unclear how long any extension will potentially be for. And it's definitely an area that continues to get a lot of attention as all market participants await clarity on the outcome of the process. As you said, Kate, though, the EU authorities have been very clear. They have a strong desire to see EU entities reduce exposure to UK CCPs, uh, particularly for euro-denominated derivatives. And there's been a very active dialogue with market participants and both the UK and the EU regulators actively engaging on any barriers to that happening. I think irrespective of what role you play in the market, so either as a dealer or as a client, there are some core considerations that you would take into account, such as cost, netting efficiencies and liquidity, as you think about whether you put on new trades or whether or not you switch your existing ones. One of the things that has become really clear from all of the market dialogue is that there is no one-size-fits-all solution. And what we touched on in terms of the impact of the UMR rules, I would say that the same thing happens here, where counterparties are very focused on the funding and initial margin requirements, really as key considerations in terms of that decision-making. So market participants need to consider things like cross-currency offsets, and product offsets that they currently get within their portfolio as they make those decisions around where to route new or potentially migrate legacy trades. There's also just some very practical considerations just in terms of how to physically port positions from one CCP to another, both in terms of the operational and also from a cost perspective. Okay, that's interesting. Paul, how are you seeing US clients prepare for the potential split in the liquidity pool? Do you see an increased interest from U.S. customers in onshore clearing houses? And do you foresee a potential impact to LCH liquidity if this goes ahead? Well, we're certainly seeing an increased interest from U.S. asset managers on the topics of CCP equivalents and a potential impact on euro liquidity pools. A priority for them will be establishing access to European CCPs under the FCM model. And while both LCH SA and UREX have FCM models, the take-up has been relatively slow to date, but we do expect that interest will increase as the regulatory landscape becomes clear. Well, moving on to a topic that's an increasing part of mainstream financial markets, sustainable finance. Paul, from a clearing perspective, how are CCPs adapting to client demand in this space and helping facilitate the use of ESG products? Well, you're right, Kate. There's been a, a growing number of ESG products available, and we can generally put these into three categories. Those are equity indices, carbon products, and commodity products. First off, with equity indices, they're available with an ESG screening that either removes the bottom performers and sectors that are not deemed ESG, or by focusing on the top performers within the, uh, the standard index. And then with regard to carbon products, uh, those provide an ESG component by pricing carbon uh, in the first place, which would help market participants hedge and then 
ultimately reduce their pollution costs. And then finally, there's a growing number of commodity products that would support the transition to a low carbon economy. A couple of examples would be renewable energy, fuels, futures, and futures even on things like scrap metal and recycled content. The bottom line is the increase in sustainability offerings across product categories is certainly an indication of the important role CCPs play in the industry's ESG efforts. Yes, and from a market structure perspective, we are seeing continued action from global regulators on climate roadmaps and a push for harmonized frameworks, disclosures and reporting. The regulatory direction of travel could potentially lead to even more ESG product offerings, but will also help to prevent greenwashing. So these issues are clearly front and center for a lot of buy-side market participants. And this has been, in what I view, a very helpful and enriching discussion. Emma and Paul, thank you very much for joining me and for your insights today. Thanks for having us, Kate. Thanks, Kate. And to our listeners, stay tuned for more episodes of Market Matters. Thanks for listening. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together J.P. Morgan, and do not constitute research or recommendation advice or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument, are not issued by research, but a solicitation under CFTC Rule 1.71. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. JP Morgan may make markets and trade as principal and securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. The FIC Market Structure Publications, or to one newsletters, mentioned in this podcast, are available for JP Morgan clients. Please contact your JP Morgan sales representative should you wish to receive these. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures.